News Flash for Monday, 23 April 2018. It's 4 p.m. Singapore time. Billions of dollars poured into Nepal after a powerful earthquake devastated the country three years ago is being misdirected towards building unnecessary new homes where old ones could have been salvaged, experts warn. Survivors of the 7.8 magnitude quake that killed nearly 9,000 people in April 2015 are being pushed to construct new buildings they do not need, casting doubt on the efficacy of the government's $9 billion US dollars reconstruction effort. Mr. Noor Tufani, Nepal Country Director for Build Change, a charity specializing in disaster proofing, said, It is proposing the wrong solution for a lot of people. Building quake-proof homes was a condition of the 4.1 billion US dollars pledged to Nepal by international donors under the tagline Build Back Better. The government identified 708,000 families whose homes had been damaged and set up a 3,000 US dollars cash subsidy program to encourage them to construct homes that could withstand future seismic shocks. Three years later, just 15% had been rebuilt under the 2.1 billion US dollar scheme. The sluggish reconstruction effort has been hit by political infighting, bureaucracy, and confusion among quick victims over how to obtain the subsidy. Many felt their damaged homes to build smaller ones, often at huge cost, instead of quake-proofing their mud and brick dwellings by retrofitting them with reinforced beams. Build Change estimates that some 250,000 homes could be salvaged in this way, while another 150,000 rebuilt since the disaster would also need to be retrof retrofitted. Sturdy wooden pillars secure Mr. Shekha Prasad Timosina's house in Dankarka, a village 45 kilometers east of Kathmandu, as workers busily mix concrete and bend rods on his porch. My house did not collapse but suffered cracks after the earthquake. I'm glad I did not have to tear it down and I could retrofit it, he told Agents France Press. The National Reconstruction Authority, the government agency overseeing the rebuilding efforts, only approved retrofitting midway through last year. Mr. Indra Lal Shrestha, a trained retrofitter, said, We were unsure what to do earlier. With the grant, we could have only built a small house. He plans to retrofit his own family home rather than raising it. We can live like we used to and are not forced to take on large debts to rebuild, he said. Many villagers live in mud and stone houses two and a half stories high, with space to house animals and store grain as well as accommodate a large extended family. But the cost of rebuilding with the money provided is beyond many families. Meanwhile, the government-approved designs for new homes are much smaller, forcing farm families to adjust farming practices that are the main source of income in rural, impoverished Nepal. Mr. Yu Raj Musal, the head of the Reconstruction Authority, concedes that more homes could have benefited from retrofitting. Retrofitting is important. It should have started earlier. But now that we have opened doors, we expect there might be more people interested to retrofit and retain their original homes, he told AFP. The British Governance Department of International Development, or DFID, has committed 7.6 million US dollars to a retrofitting project with build change. So far, around 50 homes have been completed.
The government has earmarked around 25,000 homes for retrofitting, but DFID and Build Change say more could be done. Rebuilding has picked up. The government says it is on target to complete reconstruction by 2020, but faces an estimated 1 billion US dollars shortfall for rebuilding homes alone. Japan's new home-sharing law was meant to ease a shortage of hotel rooms, bring order to an unregulated market, and offer more lodging options for foreign visitors ahead of next year's Rugby World Cup and the 2020 Tokyo Olympics. Instead, the law is likely to stifle Airbnb and other home-sharing businesses when it is enacted in June and force many homeowners to stop offering the services, renters and experts say. The Minpaku, or Private Temporary Lodging Law, the first national legal framework for short-term home rental in Asia, limits home-sharing to 180 days a year, a cap some hosts say makes it difficult to turn a profit. More importantly, local governments, which have final authority to regulate services in their areas, are imposing even more severe restrictions, citing security or noise concerns. For example, Tokyo's Chuo Ward, home to the Tony Ginza shopping district, has banned weekday rentals on grounds that allowing strangers into apartment buildings during the week could be unsafe. That is a huge disappointment for Airbnb superhost Misa Mika, who asked that her last name not be used because home renting is now officially allowed only in certain zones. She has enjoyed hosting international visitors in her spare two-bedroom apartment, but will stop because her building management has decided to ban the service ahead of the law's enactment. I was able to meet many different people I would have not met otherwise. I may sell my condo, said Mika, who started renting out her apartment after she used a home-sharing service overseas. Mika added that if she were to rent the apartment out on a monthly basis, she would only make one-third of what she does from short-term rentals. The ancient capital of Kyoto, which draws more than 50 million tourists a year, will allow private lodging in residential areas only between January 15 and March 16, avoiding the popular spring and fall tourist seasons. Similarly, Tokyo's trendy Shibuya Ward will permit home-sharing services in residential areas only during school holidays, with certain exceptions, so children would not meet strangers on their way to school. In short, renters and experts say the new law is doing more to hurt than help, even as a record 28.7 million tourists flocked to Japan last year, up 19% from the year before. Japan aims to host 40 million foreign tourists a year by 2020. Mr. Yasuhiro Inaoka, who manages about 15 properties for Airbnb hosts in Tokyo, says the net effect of the law is banning individuals from offering home lodging. Central government officials say that excessive local limits could defeat the law's objectives, but that they cannot force local governments to loosen their policies. Soichi Taguchi, an official at the government's tourism agency, said, Restricting home rental due to vague concerns that foreigners are unsafe or that it is a strange practice goes against the concept of the new law. The annual cap of 180 days for home sharing and stricter rules set by local governments is a victory for the hotel industry, which opposes private properties being used for tourist accommodation. Mr. Jake Wozinski, 
spokesman for Airbnb in Asia-Pacific said. While each city and town is unique, we believe that by, follow, by following the national recommendations, all Japanese cities and communities will be able to benefit from the growing economic opportunity provided by home-sharing and short-term rentals. About 62,000 Airbnb listings have sprung up in Japan, far smaller than other major tourist destinations such as Italy, which has 304,400 listings, or France, with 490,000. Elsewhere in Asia, Singapore allows home sharing but requires a minimum period of three months. Two Airbnb hosts were fined 60,000 Singapore dollars each by a local court in April for unauthorized short-term letting. Hyaku Senrenma, a Japanese rival to Airbnb, has 2,000 listings for its Stay Japan service, an online travel agency Booking Holdings, Booking.com, and Chinese agents have also entered the Japanese market. The new law requires homeowners to register rental properties for short-term stays with the local government by undergoing fire safety checks and submitting proof that the owner is not mentally disturbed. San Francisco-based Airbnb said it would obey the new law and remove all the non-compliance listings from its site by June. But the company is also confident that the number of listings will bounce back and eventually exceed the current level because Japan still has a great deal of potential to expand, said country manager Yasuyuki Tanabe. We will have clear rules for home lodging, which will encourage more people to list their properties. One alternative for home renters is to apply for a hotel license. That process has been simplified to relax requirements for a reception area and no longer mandate a minimum number of rooms. One man who asked not to be named has gone this route. He stopped renting out Airbnb apartments in Tokyo and instead obtained a license to run a five-room hotel out of a converted traditional wooden machiya house in Kyoto. He still advises his pro advertises his property in Kyoto on Airbnb, and the hotel license frees him from the 180-day limit. With the hotel license, I can provide the service all year round, he said. But for many, this is not an option because their buildings would not allow home sharing at all, regardless of licensing. When the Land Ministry asked apartment management unions to decide whether to permit short-term rentals, only 0.3% of them nationwide said they would, according to the Condominium Management Association. Moving to world news, a Belgian court will give its verdict today on Salah Abdeslam, the last surviving suspect in the Paris Islamist attacks over a bloody 2016 shootout with police in Brussels that led to his capture. Prosecutors asked at the trial in February for Abdeslam and his co-defendant, Sofian Ayari, to be jailed for up to 20 years if found guilty on charges of terrorist-related attempted murder and possession of banned weapons. Neither Abdeslam, who is being held in jail in France, pending a separate trial over the 2015 Paris attacks in which 130 people died, nor Ayari, is expected to be in court in Brussels for the verdict, a court spokesman told AFP. Belgian security forces will mount a major operation around the imposing Palace of Justice building in Brussels for the verdict, which judges are due to start reading out at 6.45am Greenwich Mean Time. Abdeslam, a Belgian-born French national, was transported to the court from France 
for the first day of the trial amid tight security, including a helicopter escort, while Tunisian national Ayari is in jail in Belgium. On the first day of the trial, Abdeslam proclaimed that he would only put his trust in Allah and accused the court of being biased against Muslims. He then refused to attend the rest of the proceedings. Three police officers were wounded in the gun battle after police acting on the tip-off over the Paris attacks raided a flat in the forest area of Brussels on March 15, 2016. Abdeslam was arrested three days later in the largely immigrant Molenbeek area of the Belgian capital, near his family home. On March 22, suicide bombers from a cell linked to the Paris attacks killed 32 people and wounded hundreds more at Brussels airport and a metro station in the Belgian capital. Investigators say Abdeslam's arrest spurred the Brussels bombers to bring forward the attacks, which had originally been planned for a later date, as they feared they could be captured. Prosecutors have said that DNA links Abdeslam to the apartment in the forest district of Brussels where the shooting took place, but not to the weapons themselves that were used. After Abdeslam refused to return to court for the trial in February, his lawyer Sven Mary sought the case's dismissal on a technicality over how the judges were named to investigate the gun battle and said media leaks had denied him a fair trial. But lawyers for police wounded in the gun battle accused Abdeslam of mocking the trial. One of the injured police officers was still suffering from after-effects, including brain lesions, epileptic fits, and vision and balance problems. An organization representing victims of the Brussels attacks and their families has asked for symbolic damages of one euro from the trial. The Belgian trial is to prelude to a bigger one that Abdeslam will face in France at a later date over the November 2013, 2015 Paris attacks, which were claimed by the Islamic State jihadist group. Abdeslam's brother Brahim was one of the suicide bombers. Alexander Kogan, the academic who was hired by Cambridge Analytica to harvest information from tens of millions of Facebook profiles, defended his role in the data collection on Sunday, saying he was upfront about how the information would be used and that he never heard a word of objection from Facebook. Yet Kogan, a psychology officer who has found himself cast as the villain by both Cambridge Analytica and Facebook, expressed regret for his role in the data mining which took place in 2014. Back then, we thought it was fine. Right now, my opinion has really been changed. I think that's the core idea we had, that everybody knows and nobody cares, was wrong. For that, I am sincerely sorry, he said. Since the full scope of Cambridge Analytica's data collection was reviewed last month by the New York Times, both Facebook and Cambridge a political data firm, have been under intense scrutiny and eager to shift the blame to Kogan. They have said that he misled them about how the information was being collected and what it was being used for. Facebook has even banned Kogan from the social network and deleted his profile. But in his first extensive interview since the report in The Times, Kogan insisted that he was upfront about the Facebook app used to harvest the data and that no one seemed to care. The belief in Silicon Valley, and certainly our belief at that point, was that the general public must be aware that their data is sold and shared and used to advertise to them, he, Kogan said in an, in an interview with 60 Minutes on Sunday.
founded by Stephen Bannon and Robert Merker. Merker. Merker, a wealthy Republican donor, Cambridge Analytica rose to prominence for its work with President Donald Trump's campaign in the 2016 election. The company claimed it had developed analytical tools that could identify the personalities of U.S. voters and influence their behavior, and that Facebook data had been used to help create so-called psychographic modeling techniques. Cambridge Analytica has since insisted that the Facebook data was not used in its work in the 2016 campaign. Some 10,000 people marched through the Chilean capital yesterday, demanding an end to the privatized pension system created under the dictatorship of Augusto Pinochet, demanding improved conditions. Waving banners, chanting noisy slogans to the sound of trumpets and drums. Pensioners and workers with their families marched through Santiago, demanding an end to the current system, known by its Spanish acronym AFP. The system, which manages 170 billion U.S. dollars in funds, has come under fire because of the low returns to pensioners, who had been led to expect annual payments amounting to 70 percent of their last salary. Protest leader Luis Messina told reporters, "This movement is looking to improve pensions." Which keep falling in Chile, especially for women. This demand cuts across sectors and fights for decent pensions. Messina heads the No Plus AFP protest movement, launched five years ago by unions that came out against the system, and have organized marches of over 100,000 people. The AFP system was created in 1981 by new liberal economists influenced by the University of Chicago's Milton Friedman, known as the Chicago Boys. They replaced a government-funded pay-as-you-go system with one in which workers and their employers paid a proportion of their earnings into privately-run pension funds. The demonstrators want an end to the system in favor of one that includes contributions not just from the employee but also from the employer and the state. Chile's president Sebastian Piñera, who says he wants to change the Pinochet-era pension system. Has pledged to outline a number of reforms that would involve bringing in insurance firms and creating a state version of the system. Southwest Airlines Co. said it cancelled about 40 flights yesterday, or 1% of those scheduled, as it inspects engines after last week's deadly accident in Pennsylvania. The airline said the cancellations were the results of the company's announcements on Tuesday that it would, over the next 30 days, begin inspecting other CFM56-7B engines manufactured by CFM International, the engine involved in last week's accident. At the time, Southwest said those inspections would cause some impact on operations, but it has not said how many engines it plans to inspect. On Friday, the Federal Aviation Administration and European airline regulators ordered emergency inspections within 20 days of nearly 700 aircraft engines similar to the one involved in the fatal Southwest engine blowout earlier this week. The, en the engine explosion on Southwest Flight 1380 on Tuesday was caused by a fan blade that broke off. The FAA said the blast shattered a window, killing a passenger. In the first U.S. passenger airline fatality since 2009, Southwest has declined to answer questions about its CFM56-7B inspection program, including how many engines were inspected prior to the accident, 
and if the engine that's failed had been inspected. A Southwest flight in August 2016 with a CFM-56-7B engine made a safe emergency landing in Pensacola, Florida, after a fan blade separated and debris ripped a hole above the left wing. After that incident, the European agency gave airlines nine months to check engines. U.S. regulators were still considering what to do after proposing some checks. And this is your news for today. Thank you for listening.